Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in November of last year. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In a recent article for Terrain.org titled In Defense of Pinion Nut Nation, writer and photographer Stephen Trimble says, Pinions and junipers are the size of humans. We don't look down at them casually and we don't gaze up in awe. We're equal in scale. Tree usually means tall, vertical. These trees are often round. They have the reserved warmth of a native grandmother. When you live in pinion juniper woodland, you live with the trees, not under them. You participate. You reside. Trimble goes on to say that uh, this humble scatter of conifers is the x-axis of the desert west, the baseline. And he says this land is under threat. We're going to talk about it with Stephen Trimble, also Mary O'Brien, Utah Forest Program Director with the Grand Canyon Trust, and Cameron Zafar, the field attorney with the Grand Canyon Trust as well. We welcome uh, back to the program Stephen Trimble. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Tom. I'm always delighted to talk with you. Good. Uh, Same here. Uh, Mary O'Brien with the Grand Canyon Trust. Uh, Welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom, for um, having a program on PJ. Yes, <laughs> delighted to do so. I uh, understand you are in the process of retiring as the Utah Forest Program Director of the Grand Canyon Trust. Have you completed that process? Or are you still in that position? Um, my last day is December thirty first, twenty twenty. Okay, so you're. you're but just... I'll. But I'm going to be continuing on on lots of lots of issues of importance um, on public lands in Utah. And your background is that of a scientist, right? Yeah, my background is in uh, as a botanist, um, and specifically uh, pollination biology, interaction of of you know uh, butterflies and and bees and so on with uh, flowers and how they mutually help each other. All right, and Cameron Zafar joins us, field attorney with the Grand Canyon Trust. Uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, hi, Tom. Happy to be here, and thanks for having me. Uh, I just wanted, before we jump in, I was interested in your biography, uh, Cameron. Uh, you, you said you had a uh, important experience, a two-week journey down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. And that I guess that triggered something in you. You wanted to help protect these lands. Yes, it did. Um, I was lucky enough during my law school experience to take a trip uh, down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon as part of a class uh studying water resources in the West, and it really was transformative, especially learning about the disposition of uh, the Native people of the Grand Canyon from their land. Um, I, myself, am a tribal member of the Choctaw Nation and also of Chickasaw ancestry, and so it's always been important to me um, to protect Indigenous rights, and so uh, I've been doing that as field attorney for the Grand Canyon Trust, and it's been very rewarding. Well, let me start with uh, Stephen Trimble. Uh, you wrote this piece. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty hard hitting, uh, Stephen. It's you're you're seeing a, a very imminent threat to this country, and uh, placing the blame on the Trump administration. I wonder if you could start with uh, this country and how uh, your love, your obvious love, that shines through in this article for for this, um, uh, you know, pinion juniper, a PJ uh, country. Or as I think Gary Paul Nabhan calls it, uh, opinion not nation. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. You know, the the piece really grew right out of the pandemic, believe it or not. 
my wife and I have been living at our place in Torrey since March, pretty much continuously, um, escaping from Salt Lake City where we, we have a home, and it just feels a lot safer here. And we're surrounded by PJ. We're surrounded by Pinion Juniper Woodland on the Mesa where we live, just outside of Torrey. And I found myself almost paralyzed as a writer in the first few months. I was so disturbed, and, and there was just this sense of unsettlement that kept me from sitting down and, and cranking out words. And at the same time, there was, uh, as you said, an imminent threat from the Trump administration's Bureau of Land Management opening up chaining and destruction of pinion juniper woodland pretty much all over the West. And so I finally managed to sit myself down and begin what I thought was an op-ed addressing those imminent threats to PJ. And I just had a lot more to say. I love pinion juniper woodland. I really think of it as my home landscape. Ever since I was in my 20s, I've lived off and on in PJ, uh, starting as a park ranger in the canyon country and and you know, for the last 20 years, having this, this home in the Pinion Juniper Woodland on the Moen Kopi Formation just outside of Capitol Reef National Park. And so what, what was starting as a 600-word op-ed just kept getting bigger, and it became therapeutic for me to write about this landscape I love and kind of write myself out of my paralysis. So I began doing interviews. I talked with Mike Popejoy, a, a Pinion Juniper specialist, also with the Grand Canyon Trust, and Allison Jones, the emeritus director of Wild Utah Project, who had done a lot of, of uh, research on PJ. And my, my friend Kevin Jones, the former Utah State archaeologist, about how important pinions and junipers were to Native people. And the piece ended up being a combination of sort of a love letter to the, to the PJ and a call to action and a natural history of this incredible landscape, which tends to be ignored. It's sort of the background landscape for so much of the West. And uh, once it was published, finally, <laughs> after uh, a lot of really fine editing from the folks at Terrain.org, I was emailing back and forth with Mary O'Brien about the content and thought, you know, this would make a great a great discussion for, uh, for Tom Williams' show. So here we are. Well, and thanks for bringing that to me. Um, so, uh, and I want to get to... Uh, Kind of a baseline from each of our guests here, starting with you, Stephen Trimble. Uh, tell me a little bit about these these trees. You you describe this as the baseline, and so you know that's very important. But baseline can also, as you say, just uh, sort of mean they're in the background, and we're looking for exceptions to the baseline. Right, and and so as you wander across the Great Basin and the Colorado Plateau, you know you're moving through elevation gradients. You know you're down in the basins where there are desert shrubs, you're up in the mountains where there's spruce fir forest or ponderosa pines. But between about 4,500 and 6,500 feet, all across the southwest, the, the pinions and junipers are the dominant trees. And they're actually the third most extensive plant community in the country. But people tend to be not looking at them with great attention. And they're extraordinary trees. You know, pinions obviously produce pinion nuts, which were crucial to Native people. Uh, juniper berries have been used in a million different ways. And the, uh, the co-adapted community of animals, everything from pinion jays to insects to small mammals, 
really depend on, on the fruits of these trees, the pinion nuts and the juniper berries, and use them in all kinds of different ways. And so when you begin to really look at the trees, it's, a, it's remarkable how important they are. That's why Gary Navhan, when he mapped the food nations of North America, gave pinion nut nation the same weight as salmon nation or bison nation. And so I, I, I just... I love the trees. They live a long time, 1,500 years, sometimes twice that long. As they get older, they erode into beautiful sculptures that tend to catch your eye when you're hiking. Uh, there's, there's, there's no downside to hiking in pinion juniper woodland. Mm. Mayor O'Brien, uh, tell me more about uh, pinions and, and junipers in, in this country. Well, it, one, of the, the, one of the important things... I think, and, and I'm, I'm going to mention sagebrush because that's a, a companion kind of uh, vegetation type all around us. They're both communities, and, and Stephen is alluding to this by saying um, it's not only the trees, it's the wildlife, it's, it's also uh, the grasses, the shrubs, the wildflowers that should be and can be under pinion and juniper. Um, And the same with sagebrush. And I mention that because one of the um, justifications for the BLM and the Forest Service to cut down pinion and juniper is where it's it's, um, moving into sagebrush. And, and sagebrush, too, is a community, not just shrubs. And I think sometimes, sometimes as we drive past sagebrush or pinion juniper woodlands, we think, oh, it's not very attractive, or, oh, it's, it's um, kind of bare ground and trees in the case of pinion juniper. And a lot of that much of that has to do with it being heavily grazed, um, particularly by cattle, also by um, deer and, and elk um, in large numbers, so that in some cases we're not seeing the community of pinion and juniper. We're seeing trees. Um and and sometimes quite dense trees, and think, oh, we ought to get rid of this and make the land, you know, more productive for for, for cows. Um, so that's that's some of the aspect that I look at a lot. Is is it a whole community? It's it's the same with aspen. You know, all of these wonderful vegetation types that we have in Utah, um, and, and, and particularly in southern Utah, the sagebrush, the pinion and juniper, the aspen, um, and of course that's uh, a lot up in the north, northern Utah, is that we need, we need to be seeing them as whole neighborhoods, communities. Um, so that's some of what I look at when I'm out in sagebrush and pinion juniper. I remember one time up at Left Fork Huntington um, Creek um, up um, on the Manti LaSalle National Forest, and I was walking through sagebrush, and I was thinking, oh, my gosh, there is flowers and grasses under here. 
why I hardly ever see that native grasses and found out that it wasn't being grazed. Um, and so I think, I think of pinion juniper as, as a whole lot of um, pieces to make the neighborhood, to make the nation. <laughs> mm. It takes a lot of plant types to make a pinion nut nation. And uh, you referenced, uh, you know, how we look at this. We, do we see a whole community or do we see individual trees? Do we, do we see this as, you know, uh, of, of use uh, uh, in and of itself, or do we see this as a barrier, right? And that, that's uh, it's part of the debate. A barrier. And, I, and, and, you know, I really urge people to read Stephen's um, lovely article in, in um, Terrain, um, at terrain.org because he has some photos um, that are that make you kind of fall in love with um, pinion and juniper. And sometimes pinion and juniper trees are by themselves out on a slick rock or um, out on a sand dune in West Desert. Um, but but oftentimes it's it's this whole community and managers uh, and, and what. Stephen um, describes in his article is is cases where the in particular the Bureau of Land Management, but also the Forest Service are looking at these almost as barriers to having open grasslands for cattle, or that they're what they call encroaching into sagebrush, um, again uh, taking up space that cows could be eating um, grass in if they took the uh, the pinion and juniper out. And it's, it's just not looking at the whole communities, because once the pinion and juniper are taken out and the cows are put out, out there, then we're back to bare ground, whether it's under juniper and pinion or under sagebrush, um, or um, or out in the open. Mm. So yeah, cows but... come into this whole issue not just in the impetus to remove pinion and juniper, but also afterwards what they do to the land that has been denuded of pinion and juniper. And we'll we'll talk about that as we go along here as well. Uh, let me bring in uh, Cameron Zafar again. He's a field attorney with the Grand Canyon Trust. Um, Cameron Zafar, you wrote an interesting uh, blog post at the Can- Grand Canyon Trust titled "Cultural Uses of Pinion and Juniper uh, Forests." And we'll uh, you know we'll treat this as we go along. Uh, maybe just a, a beginning here. Uh, these uh, lands, these uh, plants, are important culturally to Native peoples. Yes, absolutely. You know, I think Mary covered how the ecosystem components of PJ Woodlands are often overlooked. Uh, I think another important aspect that's overlooked is the cultural importance and the cultural uses of these woodlands. You know, since time immemorial, uh, indigenous peoples on the Colorado Plateau and in the Great Basin, they've lived with pinion and juniper forest. Uh, it's, it's quite hard to overstate the importance of these trees, um, you know, they're keystone species in a lot of indigenous cultures, what we would recognize as modern-day Ute, Paiute, Navajo, Hopi, Puebloan peoples. They had a number of uses in, 
you know, in daily life, they also had roles and rituals and stories. Uh, and they just had a uniqueness relative to other species on the plateau. They're resilient. They were dependable. Um, yeah. And, you know, the uses of these trees are abundant. They, they were used medicinally. They were used in art and ceremony. Uh, obviously, they were used as food. And just to give a few examples, juniper berries, uh, which are technically cones, they were used to cure influenza, um, to fight dandruff, to soothe basic aches and pains. Um, Indigenous peoples, they brewed juniper leaves and tea to induce pregnancy. They used pinion pitch, which is basically the sap, um, and salves and open cuts uh, to make canoes waterproof. There's all kinds of uses here. Um, You know, I could go on and on. But I think the basic point is to indigenous peoples, even today, pinion and junipers, they're more than just a woodland. They represent, I think, a way of life, um, a longstanding connection to the land. Uh, and, and that's just often overlooked by agencies, I think, and other land managers. Just a quick follow-up right now. I was going to ask you, does the, these cultural uses continue? Uh, and I was, you know, in your blog post, you're, you're indicating yes. Uh, for example, you have a photo here of a uh, Carlos Baca, chief and founder of Taste of Native Cuisine, and uh, he's using, uh, I'm not sure exactly what, uh, what he's using, pine nuts, I guess, in some cuisine here. Yes, absolutely. I mean, obviously, uh, a use that has never ended is the use of pinion and juniper uh, for a food substance. Pine nuts are a staple of Southwest cuisine and have been long before, you know, any colonists were here. Pine nuts were perhaps, you know, if not the most important, one of the most important food sources for indigenous peoples of these area. Um, they were eaten, you know, in many ways. Uh, and beyond that, I think, it's important to recognize that pinion and juniper woodlands also support a variety of, of wildlife, such as antelope and elk, deer, and turkey, that also allowed Native peoples to inhabit and hunt in these woodlands. Um, but there's other cultural uses that still go on today. Pinion and juniper are still used for constructing homes and other structures. Uh, juniper bark is used to make roofs. You know, the wood is also just useful for household tools and, you know, basic utilitarian needs. So, yes, um, to answer your question, these uses absolutely continue today. Well, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, much more to say about uh, PJ country. I feel pretty cool saying that. I didn't, I didn't know that term before uh, Stephen Trimble and company brought this uh, topic to me. Uh, pinion juniper country is what we're talking about. And I think we've all you know, driven through various areas of Utah. You've, you've at least seen this from the roadways, uh, and some of you may have gotten out into this country and love to hear your experience in this country and your opinion on what we're talking about, especially the policy uh, implications here. And we're talking with Stephen Trimble, a writer and photographer, um, Mary O'Brien, Utah Forest Program Director with Grand Canyon Trust, and Cameron Zafar, Field Attorney with the Grand Canyon Trust. More following this. Support for Project Resilience Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. For the past two years here on Utah Public Radio, we've been bringing you a weekly dose of research and exploration. We call it undisciplined because we work really hard to take scientific studies, which are usually written in journals intended for people who share a background in a subject matter, and make them accessible for just about everyone. 
There are more than 100 episodes available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can catch us every Thursday morning at 1030 here on UPR. Thanks to those of you who signed up to join us for our meet and greet and family-style picnic in southern Utah. And thanks to our friends at the Bitten Spur in Springdale for hosting what will be an afternoon of amazing food, music, and a welcomed opportunity to see longtime friends and to make new friends. We have closed reservations for this event, but don't worry, there are more opportunities for us to gather coming in June. Stay tuned to Utah Public Radio and sign up for our weekly UPR email update at upr.org. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in November of last year. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about Pinion Juniper Country, uh, what Gary Knappen calls uh, Pinion Nut Nation. And uh, Stephen Trimble uh, wrote an article recently for Terrain.org titled In Defense of Pinion Nut Nation. He says that this... uh, This land is um, the x-axis of the desert west, the baseline. He uh, goes on to say that this land is under imminent threat. We're talking about this with Stephen Trimble, also Mary O'Brien, who is the Utah Forest Program Director of Grand Canyon Trust, and Cameron's a far field attorney with the Grand Canyon Trust. So, uh, Stephen Trimble, uh, tell me a bit more about this threat, and uh, I wonder if you could also, in uh, in your response, talk about chaining which is a, a method, I don't know if it's still being used. Um, you know, we've all heard about this, but you describe it in great detail in your article. Help me to, to, to really visualize it. You bet. <clears throat> so, you know, imagine driving one of the, the state highways through the, the foothills of Utah Mountains or the canyons of the Colorado Plateau, <clears throat> and you see a hillside that is look, that looks like it's just been denuded. You know, there's debris everywhere. It looks, you can't tell what happened, but it clearly suffered some sort of damage and destruction. And that's what has been done to Pinion Juniper Woodland for 50 years. Uh, chaining, just massive chaining, had its heyday in the 60s and 70s. The idea is, as Mary said, um, getting rid of the trees to make more space for, for grass for cows. And it really is, it really is violent. I mean, my my reaction to these places starts out as just pure emotional response. Uh, the agencies call this treatment. And let's be clear what treatment means. I'll just read you the descriptions of what happens from the Wild Utah Project literature survey about pinion juniper treatment. In, tra- in, tra- in chaining, anchor chains, anchor chains that weigh more than 20,000 pounds from large destroyer or cruiser ships, 40 to 160 pounds per link, and up to 350 feet long, are pulled between two crawler tractors across the forest, and trees and shrubs are simply uprooted and left. There's another system called a mastication system, where a bull hog masticator, a large metal drum attached to a front-end loader or excavator, simply shreds the trees into mulch. You know, these are not harvested. They're simply destroyed and left in place or simply left in place or sometimes burned. And so, you know, when I walk through the forest and I'm just reveling in each individual tree and then come across an area that's been chained, I have this emotional response that I've really been attacked personally by someone who is destroying a place that I love. And the remarkable thing, you know, when I talk to the biologist, is that it doesn't really work. You know, 70% of the time, these efforts do not create 
the intended boost in range quality. Either there's no measurable, measurable effect or they actually prove harmful. And you're not just losing the trees. You know, pinion jays are the, the signature animal in these communities, and pinion jays have declined by 84% since I started hiking in these places back in 1970. And they're projected to lose another 50% in the next 20 years. You know, we're sacrificing a lot in, in the hope of raising more range grass for cows. And, you know, cattle, gra- cattle grazing is important to the culture of the West more than it is the economy these days. You know, there are a lot of small towns and communities that think of themselves as ranching communities. But if you really look at the numbers, ranching and farming is, is a tiny, tiny contributor to the local economy, which is shifting more, much more toward, you know, tourism and services and retirees and all kinds of other ways of, of making a living in places that are hard places to make a living. So, it's, it's all tied together. It's complicated. It's complicated by climate change. It's complicated by fire. Um, you know, the biologists on our, on our show today can, can address that more accurately than I can. My, my response starts out with emotion, emotion, and then I, I go to the experts to, to fill in the gaps on, on facts. Mm-hmm. Mary Bryan, what's, what, what's your take on this? Um, there has been more just overall deregulation under the Trump administration, uh, you know, a, a certain emphasis and focus, uh, BLM and other agencies under the Trump administration. Um, I guess, tell me about the overall picture, the, the management of these uh, this, this PGA country. Yeah, and um, Stephen says it's complicated, and even the management is complicated, because um, while, while a lot and probably the major impetus for pinion juniper removal is to um, make grass for cows. Um, and often, in, in, especially in the case of the Bureau of Land Management, just frankly seed European pasture grasses, where it was once a pinion nut nation. Um, but there's also some other times that uh, when pinion and juniper trees move, um, expand into sagebrush, and sage grouse might be using that particular area, you do want to take out the pinion and juniper because sagebrush will not be in an area where um, there are trees and um, the dangerous for them raptors up in the trees. So that's, that's probably, uh, that's, that's a legitimate um, remo- case where you would remove it. Another one is, is when um, in part because of cattle grazing out the grasses um, beneath it, the pinion juniper that would compete with seedlings and also a climate change. The pinion and juniper becomes very dense near communities, and you want to thin that out so that fire does not threaten the community. So it's complicated because there are some valid reasons to thin or even remove pinion and juniper, um, but the massive scale at which the Trump administration is proposing that um, 10,000, 100,000, 200,000 acres be taken out with no public uh, input, no engagement with scientists as to 
what your desired conditions are other than to take out the trees. And uh, that's, that's what we're really, really concerned about. And there are some BLM and Forest Service managers who are being quite thoughtful and quite careful about where they remove pinion and juniper, and, and, and they are engaging the public, even though the Trump administration is saying they don't have to. But at the massive scale that it is happening um, and is, is able to be happening right now is, is pretty terrifying. One, one thing about the difference between chaining and mastication I think chaining is a particularly emotionally wrenching thing to see. You see these big trees just having been pulled down with their roots sticking up in the air. They're just, they're huge and they're dead. And in our dry environment, they just are nothing but, as I say, heart wrenching. The mastication, which is what is being used much more right now, the bullhogs coming through and and in in a matter of minutes, reducing, you know, a 400-year-old a, a tree to a mulch pile, people may not notice that so much because now it's flat. And if they're not looking closely at, at what they're seeing, um, they may even think, oh, mulch pile, that's good for plants. Um, and it's less immediately um, emotionally... Um, charged, but if you walk among the mulch piles and see the few straggly grasses and weeds coming up between the mulch piles and in them, and and then you see the cattle grazing on that, you think, wow, you know, this is why Allison Jones of Wild Utah Project found that um, very often these treatments um, result in utter failure. And you've lost this legacy, cultural, biological, ecological. You've lost the pinion juniper communities. And one last thing. A, a study of 40 years of removal of pinion and juniper in Grand Staircase, Escalante National Monument, looked at treatments over a period of 40 years. And what they found was after the treatments, the juniper came back. The pinion didn't. Pinion is is even more sensitive to drought than juniper um, and climate change. So th again, these massive removals of pinion and juniper are just fundamentally altering. Um, vast communities of wildlife and, and uh, trees and, and beauty. Let me turn next to uh, Cameron Zafar. Um, what, is, what are the Native communities uh, saying about uh, the, the, these policies, the land use policies? Um, and what, uh, how, how is their voice you know, being made manifest? Yeah, um, it, it's hard to paint a broad brush for, you know, what indigenous communities um, in general think about these policies. You know, I'm I can say with some confidence, I'm sure they're distraught at what Mary and Stephen have been talking about, the massive pace um, and scale, you know, at which these vegetation treatments, as agencies call them, uh, are occurring. 
you know, I think what tribes would likely want is uh, co-management, you know, and co-stewardship of public lands, especially their ancestral lands. And, you know, on the Colorado Plateau and the Great Basin, uh, you know, a lot, all, almost all of our lands are ancestral tribal lands. Um, you know, in my research, I've come across some studies of how indigenous peoples uh, manage pinyon juniper woodlands pre-colonization. One interesting study that comes to mind was um, a study that focused on how southern Paiute peoples in present day, now Nevada, manage um, pinyon and juniper woodlands in the Great Basin. You know, with, without going into too much detail, I think a significant difference that that study found was that the, the southern Paiute people did not believe that, that land needed to be completely left alone and untouched uh, for it to be at its healthiest status. They, they had a management system where they consistently and purposely, but not, not very frequently, disturbed the land in minor ways. You know, and, and by minor disturbances, I mean they intentionally harvested plants, they pruned dead and diseased branches, um, they dislodged and collected pine nuts, they did infrequently pile and patch burning, things to achieve an, ecolog an ecological equilibrium, excuse me, to those landscapes. I think that differs now from how our modern agencies manage these woodlands, which in my experience is, you know, kind of like humans shouldn't have a presence, we back off. Then as Mary and Steve were alluding to, a problem will arise, pinion and juniper will get too dense, they'll come in and treat it, and then they won't manage it after treatment. There's little monitoring done. As Mary said, there's little de desired conditions to achieve, to ensure that you achieve the landscape you want. And so then that often leads to this pattern of treatment and retreatment. Um, and I think, you know, like I said, I think native co-management and stewardship of public lands is probably what tribal people want, uh, and it could go a long way. You know, agencies, um, you know, I'm sympathetic to agencies, especially in this day and age under the Trump administration, where, you know, they're getting direction from above. Um, they have to deal with massive lack, lack of funding, lack of staff, uh, and co-managing lands with tribes, I think, could help solve those issues and bring ecological knowledge, you know, ecological knowledge acquired over thousands of years. Uh, that knowledge and management could be brought to our modern management and I think improve it overall. Before we go to another break, um, I'd like to have you, you, you write this in your blog post, uh, the Grand Canyon Trust.org. Um, this is an example of, uh, you know, short-term focus, long-term focus, in this case, very long-term focus. Uh, you, talked very, you talked briefly about the Four Corners potato. I just wonder if you tell me about this. Yeah, that was an example. Um, Clyde Benal, or, sorry, Carlos Faca, he's a chef um, and a founder of Taste of Native Cuisine. I live here in Durango, and he lives um, a town over in Mancus. And I've had the opportunity to talk to him a couple of times about P.J. Woodlands and modern management and what he thinks. And he brought up an interesting example, which I think goes to what Mary was saying earlier, that agencies aren't considering the symbiosis uh, and the relationships that Pinion and Juniper have with the ecosystems that they occupy. And his example was, well, take the Four Corners potato, for instance. Um, it's one of North America's first cultivated plants by Native peoples, obviously, pre-colonization. And according to him, it only grows in pinyon juniper and oak forest on the plateau. And his fear was that agencies obviously aren't uh, looking at these treatments in that level of detail. And so the fear is that, you know, reducing pinyon and juniper forest across vast landscapes could risk uh, the history of a plant that has been here 
since people were here. You know, one of the first cultivated plants that we've had in this country. And I think that's just a good example that shows the symbiosis and the, the broader ecosystem view that agencies need to take when they do these uh, treatment projects. Yeah, it was an interesting example. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking about uh, pinion juniper country. Um, and uh, we're responding to a recent article for Terrain.org written by uh, Stephen Tribble titled In Defense of Pinion Nut Nation. Um, and we're talking with Stephen Trimble, also Mary O'Brien, Utah Forest Program Director with Grand Canyon Trust, and Cameron Zafar, Field Attorney with the Grand Canyon Trust. We'll have more following this break. All it takes is a few sunny, warm days, and every gardener feels that need to plant. Sometimes that desire overrides our better judgment, and we plant tender seedlings before the danger of frost has passed. Don't worry, you can fulfill that inner need and still protect tender young transplants. Just be aware of the limits of each of these methods. Hot caps and frost blankets provide about 2 to 3 degrees of added protection, so instead of freezing at 32, they are good down to about 30 degrees. Transparent, hard plastic plant protectors give even more cold temperature defense at about 4 to 6 degrees below freezing. The ultimate shields against cold use a water barrier between layers of hard or flexible plastic that protect plants into the low 20s. Support for The Garden Spot comes from Anderson Seed and Garden, offering spring decor, garden supplies, and landscaping ideas. Located at 69 West Center Street in Logan. Information at andersonseedandgarden.com and on Facebook. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in November of last year. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We reached our last segment uh, with our guests uh, talking about Pinion Juniper Country. Um, and uh, Stephen Trimble uh, says that uh, this humble scatter of conifers needing only 10 trees per acre to qualify as forest is the x-axis of the desert west, the baseline. Uh, he goes on to say this land is under threat. We're talking about it with Stephen Trimble, also Mary O'Brien, Utah Forest Program Director with Camp Grand Canyon Trust, and Cameron Zafar, Field Attorney with the Grand Canyon Trust. Uh, so, Stephen Trimble, uh, in this article that we've been referencing uh, that you wrote for Terrain.org, just want to read this. Uh, you say, we keep bumping up against myth in public lands west. We thought we had moved beyond the lone gunman, whether outlaw or sheriff. And then along comes Clive and Bundy and his sons standing up uh, for their imagined freedom. We think we've entered an era of common sense ecological management of our public lands in the face of climate change and uh, shattering losses of biodiversity. But county commissioners in rural Utah, Nevada, and Wyoming insist against all evidence that nothing matters more than cows. Um, so this idea of uh, of myth, and, and you've you brought up the idea of emotion. Definitely, that's a, the, the emotion that you've had, right, seeing destruction of some of this land, and uh, definitely emotion on the other side as well. Yeah, you know, we just keep trying to understand our home, Tom. Um, you can go back decades to Wallace Stegner thinking about this and talking about how we need to create a society to match the scenery that we all love so much. You know, Stegner divided the West up into boomers and stickers, famously. And we've still got the boomers, unfortunately, the boomers who are here to share the land of whatever crop makes colonists and settlers a quick buck. And then they move on, and they're not fully engaged with the community. And the stickers stay, but the complication is that we've got lots of different layers of stickers at this point, if I want to keep using Stegner's language. Um, you know, here in southern Utah, the the folks, the multi-generational legacy families who 
you know, have lived here since the mid 1800s, think of this as their home, and they think of the public lands surrounding their communities as pretty much their land. And that, of course, leaves out the native people that were here for more than 10,000 years before that. And it leaves out the fact that, you know, two-thirds of Utah is public land, 85% of Nevada is public land. That is land owned by all Americans, not just the small number of folks who live in these isolated communities. And so we've, we've got layers of stratigraphy, layers of, of geologic formations, and we have layers of myth. And we're still trying to figure all of it out. And as, as Cameron said, we're, we're now paying way more attention to Native traditional knowledge and the, the stories of hundreds of generations of Native folks who have lived here, uh, who understand in ways that scientists don't the, these places that have been their homes. And so lots of people are moving in, and the old, older families who have been here uh, since the 1800s are still here. And we're kind of remembering that all of us newcomers took the land from the Native people that were here originally. And, and, uh, it, and we're just trying to figure it out. And so I think we need new myths. You know, myth is useful. Myth is sort of the, the underground, underlying story of a place we live, a place we call home. And um, somehow we need to come together. It's, it's another example of the polarization that we're dealing with in the country. The threats that we've talked about from, from the Trump administration will surely moderate to some extent under the Biden administration, but these policies are hard to reverse, and the polarization doesn't just go away in one election. And the suspicion and denial of science that is one of the real problems in America is part of the story that we're talking about in this program about Pinion and Juniper. So just like we've talked about the biology and ecology being complicated, the, the politics and the, the, uh, the community culture of these places is complicated, too. Mayor Brian, I want to pick up with what uh, Stephen Trimble just, uh, just said. And I, I, um, I, was, I was going to ask this. It's interesting. Um, it seems to me, looking at this from the outside, that uh, whoever is in power as president and setting a tone for an administration seems to be more powerful than Congress in, in some of these policies. A change in administration, uh, how much is that going to, to change the, the policies under the Trump administration, do you think, and, and how quickly? Stephen Trimble said it's you know, maybe slower than, than, than you'd want if you'd impose these policies. Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question, because I think people, uh, we, we get so tied up, is it Trump, is it Biden, which one is president? And, and we need to remember that when a person is elected, they are, it's not just them, it's who they put at the head of the Forest Service, who they put at the head of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, it's who they put in charge of the Forest Service the Environmental Protection Agency, and all of those have so much influence on how the land around us is treated, um, how, whether science is used in predicting hurricanes, um, whether science is used in getting ready for what's inevitably coming down with um, uh, climate change. But, you know, just a quick, happy story, you know, as to how things can be. The BLM 
was going to take out Pinion and Juniper around the valley, uh, Castle Valley, the town that's about 17 miles away from Moab. They were going to take out both Pinion and Juniper. We got them, the community got BLM to come out and walk the land with us, and we saw, oh, my gosh, half the Pinion is dead from drought. And the BLM's immediate response was, we're taking no Pinion out of this treatment. And then we're not going to cut Pinion. And then we said, look, you're going to cut these eight-inch um, juniper, but really, if you take out the ones that are four inches, I mean diameter at their base, not height, if you take out ones just with just four inches and leave the bigger trees, you're going to protect the community from, from fire because most of the um, density is these younger juniper. And they said, great, we'll only do four inches diameter juniper. And then yesterday, I was out with 13 volunteers from 10 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon, and we planted 250 native um, perennial grasses in among this fire area. The BLM bought the plants, and we dug them in. We planted them. We're doing a, a small exclosure to see how they do inside an exclosure versus outside where deer graze them. And that's the use of science. That's the use of people that are, that are looking closely at pinion and juniper, kind of closely like Stephen Trimble does in his article, um, and say, oh, my gosh, let's not take any pinion out of this valley. It's already in trouble. Yeah, that is a, a, a hopeful story. Let me turn to uh, Cameron Zafar. Um, I want to talk about uh, indigenous communities and uh, and involvement in the politics of all this. I want to start with uh, Bears Ears. Th- this was, my understanding is this, the, the impetus for Bears Ears, the original conception, came from indigenous uh, communities. Um, and I wonder if the people you talked to, is uh, the, the way that played out, if you were in favor of the original Bears Ears, uh, it might have soured you on the process. I don't know. What, what do you? Uh, what's the response you're getting in people you talk to in the native uh, communities um, in terms of uh, getting involved, uh, being active? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yes, you're correct. Bears Ears was the first and only national monument yet created at the behest of indigenous tribes. You know, a big part of the original Bears Ears under, the, under President Obama's proclamation was tribal co-management uh, of the national monument. And then when President Trump came in and shrunk the monument, uh, he reduced that tribal co-management, if you can even call it that, to one unit of the monument and, and really watered it down to a level that's just um, perhaps disrespect or ignorance of what tribal co-management would entail. I, I think with the Biden administration, there's a lot of hope uh, in tribal communities that he will reinstate the monument, you know, the monument that tribes originally wanted, and uh, on top of that, that he'll reinstate the native tribal co-management regime in the monument. You know, if that happens, uh, I think it could be used as an example to extend native co-management to to other areas of public lands, where right now we're purely under a, a consultation regime, which is uh, effectively meaningless um, in a lot of circumstances. So, 
Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of hope that Bears use can be restored, that there can be a new vision for tribes in public lands, which are, at the end of the day, ancestral tribal lands, and that there's a lot of opportunity here with a new Biden administration. We just have about uh, three minutes left in the program. Uh, before we close, uh, Stephen Trimble, I, I fully intended to mention this uh, a couple of times or two or three times, uh, but I, I didn't. So I apologize. Uh, uh, have you plug an event that's uh, coming up uh, here on Wednesday that you're in part of? Well, th- thank you, Tom. <clears throat> yeah, this is really fun. There's a, a Forest Service guy in uh, Vallejo, California, who puts on an, an event, a series of events every year. And this year, he is emphasizing the 38th parallel. Uh, I'm, I'm on the 38th parallel here in Torrey, the 38th parallel of, of uh, 38 north in latitude. And Vallejo, California happens to be on the 38th parallel. And so we have a series of programs that take you around the world on the 38th parallel. And on Wednesday night at 6 o'clock online, we'll have a discussion of Solomon Carvalho, the uh, fascinating guy who was the photographer for the Fremont Expedition in 1854, a Jewish photographer from back east who had never been west. I don't think he'd ever even camped. And he got asked by Fremont to come along and to take the daguerreotypes on the route. And uh, he ended up taking the very first photograph in Capitol Reef National Park in Cathedral Valley. Uh, Like so many of Fremont's expeditions, it kind of all fell apart in the snows of Thousand Lake Mountain soon after that. But uh, We've got a filmmaker who's made a movie about Solomon Carvalho, a modern photographer, Bob Schlair, who's gone back to recreate the daguerreotypes in the same sites that Carvalho photographed uh, now, what, 170 years ago? And um, I think it's going to be fascinating. So uh, maybe you can get the link to that up on on Access Utah's website. Uh, It's going to be great fun. So I encourage everyone to listen in. I'll be part of the panel as well. Yes, definitely. We'll, we'll get that up on uh, on the link to this program uh, so people can check that out. Uh, so that's uh, that does sound fascinating. Um, I, I just uh, like just maybe three minutes, so 30 seconds each. We'll uh, maybe start in reverse order. Uh, Cameron Zafar, um, your takeaway from today's discussion, just 30 seconds. Yeah, you know, I hope overall um, listeners were informed about what's happening on pinyon juniper woodlands across the West. You know, like Mary and Steve alluded to, a lot of times agencies proceed with this project without really any public involvement or notification. So it's hard to keep up, um, you know, and it's really hard to picture what Steve was describing, how denuded and, and lifeless these landscapes will look after treatment. So, you know, I, I would just want people to go forward with that knowledge. Um, and, you know, if, if, if folks want more info, they can join organizations that work on these that will keep them informed on when projects pop up and what the justification is and what they can do. All right. Um, uh, Mary Bryan, just 30 seconds. Your top takeaway. Just encourage people to walk out among the pinion and juniper, walk out um, in our uh, Capitol Reef National Park, um, Grand Canyon National Park, where where uh, the community is pretty much now, if not in the past, being left intact, and just kind of marvel at how unique each tree is, particularly when they get older. That's really fun to see how pinion trees and juniper look when they're really old. They 
become really unique individuals and then look for what's underneath them and who's uh, flying in out and um, in among the branches. Okay, we'll give the last word to uh, Stephen Trimble, just 30 seconds. Uh, thank you, Tom, and thank you for having us. You know, I, I think the bottom line for me is we can't take anything for granted. You know, I've, I've, I'm, I just turned 70, so I'm an old guy now. And 50 years ago, I started hiking in this country, and I kind of took it for granted that pinion juniper woodland and so much of the communities that I walked through, they were there, they were changing, but, you know, there would be flocks of pinion jays flying through those pinion and juniper trees forever. There would be canyon tree frogs in the potholes in the slick rock forever. And that's a long time ago, and we have lost so much, uh, you know, the the number I quoted earlier, 84% of those pinion jays are gone. I never see canyon tree frogs anymore. And so th- my, my message would be pay attention. Don't take humble trees like pinions and junipers for granted. Don't take the fact that we are paying full attention to what the agencies might be doing. Don't take that for granted. We need conservation organizations like the Grand Canyon Trust and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, and the Sierra Club, and every one of them out there on the front lines doing proper oversight and making sure that the agencies don't mow down well, 100,000 acres of trees without well, any input. We'll have to, have to uh, leave there join those out organizations. Of time. Okay, thank you, uh, Stephen Trimble, Mary O'Brien, and Cameron Zafar. Thank you so much. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.